Odd Conduit Media. The Sandman Unlocked. Dreamers, welcome to another episode of the Sandman Unlocked. I'm one of your co-hosts, Sean, and I'm thrilled you're joining us for our breakdown of the Sandman issue 14, Collectors. I'm joined by two killer co-hosts, Ben. Hello, Ben. Chip, chip, cheerio. <laughs> and Ashley. Hey, Ashley. Stabby, stabby. <laughs> On each episode, we will be deconstructing that issue into six separate sections. First will be the rundown, where we'll let you know who created the issue and the catch-up to be sure you know where we are in the story. Next, we'll do the breakdown. This gives you a synopsis of that week's issue, and we follow that up with the deep dive, where we really get into everything that happens. In our last two sections, we'll discuss our favorite panel and non-Morpheus character. So there you have it. Six sections to get through, so let's kick it. Ashley, over to you for the rundown. Thanks, Sean. So for writer, of course, we have Neil Gaiman. Penciling, we've got Mike Dringenberg. On the cover art, we've got Dave McKean, as usual. Inker, that's Malcolm Jones III. Coloring is by Robbie Bush or Xylenol. Lettering by Todd Klein and editing by Karen Berger. Ben, catch us up. Yeah, thanks, Ashley. So I'll make this brief because we got a super chunky issue to get into. Rose Walker has been on the road, desperately searching to find her younger brother, Jed. She's being accompanied by Gilberts, uh, who is a very paradoxical gentleman who is joining her on her travels. They feel like they have finally figured out where Jed is, uh, but unfortunately, the Corinthian had gotten there first kidnaps Jed, and has killed his foster parents. So now Rose is stuck at a hotel and is waiting to kind of hear what's happening, what's going on, where Jed is. The other big thing to note is that Rose is a dream vortex, which means she is pulling dreams and nightmares in closer and closer towards her. And so far, we haven't seen too many shenanigans going on with that, but she's being watched over very carefully by Matthew the Raven. Sean, give us the breakdown. All right, so this issue starts with the collectors of the title arriving at the the Empire Hotel, I think it is, in Dodge County, Georgia. That's a, a real town with a in a real county, by the way. It's like a little unincorporated town. Not sure if the hotel's real. Uh, While the collectors mill about in the lobby, sort of checking in and making bad murder-related puns, uh, Mr. Nimrod, the convention organizer, learns that there are still two guests remaining in the hotel who are ordered to stay by the police. These guests, we learn, are Rose and Gilbert, who are waiting to hear back from the cops about the violence and destruction at the Barnaby household, and uh, about the missing jet. To help take her mind off things, Gilbert tells Rose a version of Little Red Riding Hood full of murder and cannibalism. You know, to help take her mind off things. (laughs) Not very nice. (laughs) (laughs) Meanwhile, the Corinthian arrives at the convention, which is all well and good, 
because the Corinthian is an absolute legend to these folks, and the original guest of honor, the family man, never shows up. So Corey takes the gig. Um, Nimrod is so thrilled that he tells the worst joke anyone has ever heard while giving the opening address, also reminding the attendees to use only their serial killer names and to not do any collecting during the convention. So the conference begins, and these strange, awkward people try to find some common ground and connect, but largely stay enmeshed within their own lonely fantasy worlds uh, while attending murder-related panel discussions and film screenings. One particularly, particularly eager attendee identifies himself as the Boogeyman, uh, but Corey sniffs out that he's a fake. The real boogeyman is dead, and his place has been taken by Philip Sitz, a serial killer fanboy who runs a zine. It's pathetic, right? Come on, at least start a podcast, Phil. Uh, <laughs> so, Nimrod, Corey, and the good doctor decide to ignore their own rules and tag team poor Phil. Um, on the plus side, it does seem to be the one moment where these people like actually connect with one another. Um, it just happens to be while while murdering someone. So things are getting pretty weird for poor Rose, um, but good thing old Gilbert's there to help. Oh, no, wait, actually, Gilbert spotted the Corinthian in an elevator and nope right the hell out of there, leaving Rose with a name written on a piece of paper that she is to read aloud in case of any bad trouble. Very noble, Gil Gilbert, very noble. Um, this is a guy with a gun and a sword on him. This has been established. He doesn't leave either of those. Right, right. Um, <laughs> so anyway, Rose decides to blow off some steam by dancing, but uh, she's turned away from the dance floor by Funland, who's a massive, um, simple-minded uh, convention attendee and volunteer who is suddenly very taken with Rose. He follows her back to her room and attacks her in a genuinely very disturbing scene reminiscent of Gilbert's fairy tale. Um, remembering his note, Rose calls the name Morpheus and is rescued by the Sandman himself, who sends Funland off into a dream and leaves to confront the Corinthian, not wishing to see Rose further troubled. Uh, of course, Rose is only in this predicament because Morpheus decided to use her to find the missing nightmares, remember? Um, but hey, all's well that ends well. So, Corey is downstairs uh, addressing the convention, talking about some swashbucklers and gladiators and stuff. Uh, but Morpheus is a natural heckler, so he interrupts the speech to admonish the Corinthian for being, of all things, a little underambitious. Um, he's also none too bright, though, because he straight up tries to stab the king of dreams and nightmares, getting uncreated for his trouble. Yes. Uh, just turned into a toothy little skull and some dust. So Morpheus is kind of feeling himself after this, and as a bonus, he takes away the dreams of the other collectors, forcing them to confront the reality of who they are and what they do. As they disperse into the night, Sort of Rose is there struggling to collect herself when Gilbert returns, having found an unconscious and injured Jed in the trunk of the Corinthian's car. They agree to call an ambulance and make their way home, where things will undoubtedly get even weirder. Amazing, Sean. Thank you so very much. So, you know, like I mentioned, this is a 39-page issue, so we have a whole lot to jump into. But I think 
the best way to start would be to take a look at our serial killers that we have here and some of those that are alluded to. Uh, and so, Ashley, you wanted to take us down this lane. Yes. Um, this is such a character-heavy, uh, I almost said episode, issue. Um, and there are a lot of really strong personalities gathered together. And I was just very curious as to um, what the inspiration for some of these individuals might be. And it was... Uh, really curious to me i was looking at the uh title page that is reminiscent of and sean correct me if i'm wrong a swamp thing cover that i've seen with the swamp thing in front of like the american flag um mm -hmm. but the american flag so differently i don't know you'll probably touch on that it just it came, it was like the one swamp thing thing that i like actually recognized and i was like sean's gonna be so proud of me nice um, <laughs> issue 44 we're gonna talk about oh sweet okay so i, Thank I won't you go for anything more but I, no, no, um, that's fine. but I kept staring at that title page because I was really curious about some of the figures that are shown behind that dripping uh, flag. And I can't find any record of specific uh, figures that are referenced. I was particularly trying to find the one you see kind of just above the collectors and almost in the center where it shows like two people laying their heads against what looks like a dead body. And I can't find anything on that one. Oh, but yeah. the I one that. I... Yeah. The one I was able to sort of successfully track down just by comparing, painstakingly comparing mug shots, uh, was a, uh, a nun, hilariously. So if you look to the right side, there is like a, what looks like a pouting nun, um, sort of center right. Oh, yeah, for sure. Mm -hmm. Right. So I am almost certain that that is a reinterpretation of the abbess Miriam Silicoitis, who is also known as the Woman Rasputin. Um, she was around from 1939 to 1951. She was a Greek Orthodox abbess and serial killer, and Greek authorities indicted her in 1951 on charges including, but not limited to, murder, fraud, forgery of wills, blackmail, and uh, torture. Uh, she, what she would do is she would encourage wealthy women to join her convent and then she would torture them until they agreed to donate their fortunes to the monastery. <laughs> and once the money was obtained, so the coitus embezzled it and often killed the donor. Wow. And it has been reported that at the time of her arrest, she had obtained over 300 properties across Greece uh, in this manner, in this whole process, along with gold, jewels, worth thousands of pounds. She also demanded strict adherence to ascetic practices uh, among those in the convent. So, you know, a real stripping down of your uh, daily life getting by on the, the most meager of means, you know, water, bread, etc. And um, the police believe that it led to the unnecessary deaths, and this is where it gets really sad, of 150 children from who died of tuberculosis. So she, like, mistreated wow. them because she forced them to live this ascetic lifestyle. Uh, oh. Victims of Solicoitus alleged to torture, starvation, false imprisonment, and beatings. Solicoitus, of course, denied all allegations until her death, calling them satanic fictions. Some members of this monastery still believe to this day that she is innocent and consider her a saint. So it is like an Jeez. astounding, astounding story where they have all this evidence, but there are people that are still almost certain that it's been made up, that she's been demonized, uh, and that she was, in fact, a saintly 
figure. Well, there are alternative facts. <laughs> Say that know, again? Come to, there are alternative facts that will come to yeah, light. Yeah, of course. Mm-hmm. Of course there are. The fact that she's referred to as the woman Rasputin is just really in- interesting to me. But it, when I was looking at her um, her photo, because uh, Greek Orthodox uh habits are a little bit different than like Catholic habits mm. uh, in that you don't have like that white strip over the top. It's almost like, it's almost like a hijab, not entirely, but more similar mm. to, um, and, uh, and looking at her face and the way it's positioned and the angled and everything is almost identical to the rendering in this. So it was like the only one that I could kind of successfully identify. Uh, but she uh-huh. was a fascinating and horrifying figure. I also wanted to give some background on some other characters. For example, Nimrod. Nimrod's kind of an odd name, especially for somebody who is Mm. managing an entire convention. Um, And when you guys hear the word Nimrod, you probably think, like, idiot. That's usually (laughs) how it's used now. It's like, you moron, you Nimrod. Um, But, and great for me, considering my background, it has uh, biblical connotations as well. So... In the Bible, uh, in the Old Testament, Nimrod was the son of Cush and grandson of Ham. His name has been uh, become proverbial to that of a mighty hunter, which Nimrod mentions when he's trying to like jazz himself up for giving this opening uh, dress. His quote-unquote kingdom, because he, he was a king in this, right, comprised of Babel, Erech, Akkad, and Kalneh, and then the land of Sinar, also known as the land of Nimrod. So this is all references to Genesis wow. and also referenced in First Chronicles, so in the New Testament as well, and the minor prophets, so Micah. Um, in rabbinical literature, Nimrod is the prototype of a rebellious people, and his name is interpreted as he who made all the peoples rebellious against God. Uh, he is also thought of, despite being the first hunter, um, as consequently the first person to introduce the eating of meat by man. Gross and interesting in this context, mm-hmm. particularly, mm-hmm. Um, so. considering what his freezer is full of. And then also considered the person to be the first to make war on other people. And also thought of in rabbinic lore as being the person to lead the construction of the Tower of Babel. So just constant rebellious acts against God, Um, which is interesting then when he introduces himself as a hunter for God or in the sight of God. So there's this real, we've seen this like continually as these serial killers kind of monologue about their work that they're um, doing something important or some of them, when they have that one panel, they discuss doing these things because God tells them to. But mm-hmm. then when you look at the lore of their, <laughs> of their sort of monikers, <laughs> rebellion against God, <laughs> rebellious against God. So it's just kind of an amusing little aside uh, considering Nimrod's sort of great um, aspersions and, and thoughts of, of his own wondered work. about that name. Yeah, yeah, no, it's it's he's he's rebellious against God, and he was a great, he was a great and mighty hunter. There's, you know, um, whole censuses of his kingdoms and his his wealth and work, but generally speaking, his legacy is that of being a rebel and making war. So not not entirely shocking that his legacy as a character is as it is. Um, also, I wanted to point out. And look into the name Grass Widow because that that one had stood out to me. So when you have the panel of women talking about, you know, serial being a serial killer as a woman, which I still find very funny. <laughs> um, the um, There's a character 
called the grass widow. And that was not a name I had heard before. That was not a phrase I had heard before. So I thought, oh, was there a woman that had thought of herself as the grass widow? Turns out it's actually a phrase to um, refer to a divorced woman or a woman who has been separated or often separated from her husband. For example, nowadays, a woman is called a grass widow if her husband has to leave home because he works um, for long stretches of time in another city and has to stay overnight or, you know, has to travel for work a lot and is away from home. Um, there's also sort of a jokey way of thinking of it is like someone's a grass widow if their husband is away for golf outings a lot, which I thought was kind of stupid. But generally speaking, it's this, the modern equivalent is a woman who is a, alone home with the kids because her husband works abroad frequently mm. and is not frequently in the home. So that might inform some of the ways that she manages to participate in this serial killing venture that's part of her identity. Um, interestingly, as far as like etymology is concerned, and this I just got from uh, Anatomy Lieberman, who is an Oxford linguist, um, that the most solid evidence for the term grass widow comes from Germany, where we've got grass uh, witwe, which is actually means grass widow or straw widow and competes um, with the term um, straw witwe, which is straw widow. And that surfaced in 1715 um, and was really talking about um, women who would casually lay with other men acting like wives and will have been caught, like, say, in adultery in the grasses or the fields um, and then carry on and be like, oh, I'm pregnant, but you're not married or wow. you're married to somebody else. Who were you with? Um, so sort of tying it up into, you know, their lack of virginity and their in inability to stay out of the grasses. So, again, when when you've got an issue like this that is bringing up uh, some themes of, of – um, of feminism and femininity with regard to um, who is prey and who is predator. Um, I just thought that was kind of an interesting inclusion because, again, I'd never heard that phrase before. So the fact that there are some like historical background that can tie to this. I like that panel was, that you were using because yeah. dog soup is criticizing black widows and <laughs> right. killer nurses with <laughs> a widow and a nurse right there. And it's just, right. it's just a really yes. great panel. Like just, yeah, it really is. It's what makes it one of my favorite panels because she's just totally oblivious to the fact that she is alienating herself from her own peers and colleagues. So, uh, yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> just really amusing. I love that none of these characters particularly like each other. They're all right. just there in the same, they have a common interest and that's like it. And they just, you know, other than that, they really, they don't like each other at all. <laughs> no, not at all. And that I'll kind of get into that in like my second deep dive, but that is really interesting that you've got these egomaniacs that have built themselves up with these these specific methods and they're trying to and you get the the last person I want to cover um, sort of talks about that how I thought I thought I was gonna come here and I'd find like-minded people that would be able to help me and he finds nothing nothing of that at all um, so that that does that brings me to my last figure who um, I have some theories about, but it's we meet him just under those three panels of people talking on the panels for the convention, where you've got uh, Funland talking to basically an unnamed man in blue, 
Yeah, I couldn't find a name for him either. Right. And I think that's intentional. Um, and I, I find it really interesting that we spend as much time with him as we do. Um, because I think that it is a reference to Ted Bundy, particularly because mm. of the way that he describes how he kills and why he kills mm. um, and Ted Bundy's M.O. Um, so I'm just going to, not because I want to remotely spend more time or romanticizing this figure at all, uh, because Ted Bundy himself said that he felt absolutely no guilt and in fact pitied people that felt guilt for crimes mm. such as these, whereas this character may not maybe overtly express feelings of guilt, but feelings of conflict knowing that what he's doing is not normal and in fact could be wrong and is looking for help in some case. Um, so there's that split for sure. He certainly doesn't like how it affects him. <laughs> well, yes, absolutely. He's, he's certainly <laughs> selfish, but it is interesting to me that he is in conflict with himself yeah. and is in fact the only figure at this conference that seems to express any sort of con internal conflict with what is what his, he doesn't treat it as a hobby. It doesn't sound like it sounds like he's actually wrestling with, as much as someone this far gone can uh, uh, with what he's doing. But anyway, let me let me quick catch anybody up if they have been living under a rock and don't know who Ted Bundy is. Ted Bundy, for those of you who may not know, was an American serial killer and rapist and one of the most notorious criminals of the late 20th century. Bundy had a difficult childhood, a strained relationship with his stepfather. He was shy. That made him ha be a frequent target for bullying. Uh, not that that excuses anything at all, but from outside appearances, Bundy grew up in a completely normal working class family. Um, but early on, he showed an unusual interest in the macabre in early, at an early age. Around the age of three, he became really fascinated and obsessed with knives. Um, and he was, again, described as shy, but bright. And he did didn't well he did well in school but not with his peers at all and then he went on to college he had a, a decent career in college he had a girlfriend um that girlfriend ended up quote-unquote breaking his heart and you'll see that with all of his victims up to that point then or um following that breakup have similar attributes to his to that girlfriend so a lot of his victims look similarly you know dark hair um white tall you know um, generally pretty. Mm -hmm. He, interestingly, and this will come to that big full page, um, splash page of that figure, this nameless serial killer, Bundy liked to peer in other people's windows and thought of nothing of stealing of things he wanted from other people. So if you'll note that on page 27, you've got that figure in that sort of split grid of panels. And it looks like he's peering at you through a window, almost like you yeah. are safe in your own home and he's looking into your home as he's describing these heinous huh. acts. Um, so I thought that wow. was really interesting that Bundy was noted for enjoying peering into other people's homes, thinking of the things he could take from them while we're just, we're reading a story, a, a page in which there's a guy talking about, taking the life of women while he looks like he's peering at us through a window. Uh, that's great. Yeah. yeah we yeah. saw that effect used one other time mm -hmm. in the 24 hours storyline where <laughs> are you yes, going to get into this? If you're going to get into this, I, I will. No, please share what you're going to say because I have another connection to 24 hours that okay, yeah. I thought was interesting. In 24 hours, uh, when 
I can't remember which character it is, but she's being like forced into this confession, uh, to, to do this confession. And she's talking about working in the, in the, uh, mortuary mm-hmm. and she's like fooling around with the corpses and things like that. And she's like, feel, she's like so disgusted that she has to share this, but she's compelled to, she can't mm-hmm. stop. And we get that same, uh, sort of window effect because she's like on display to us, you know, forced to, to kind yes. of open up and, 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 you know, it's, it's, uh, I, I, that, that's a, that's a really great way of alternately doing this. I love it. Yeah, well, so then just briefly, because you mentioned 24 hours, if you quick page, like just stick your thumb or or finger in the page that we're at, page 27, and flip back to the um, title page, uh, the collectors, if you look at the very top, what animal do you see at the top of the page? Uh, Oh, it's a a sheep. Yeah, it's the very sheep that we see all over 24 hours. And yeah. we had allusions to, uh, you, you mentioned um, the Red Riding Hood story and the wolves. What other animal had made its appearance in 24 hours? Wolves. Right, right. Um, so this idea of sheep and like these, these vicious pack animals comes up in, a, in another very, very violent issue. Um, so that's just, this is just an interesting link between the two. But anyway, back to something more pleasant like Ted Bundy. Um, so <laughs> later... <laughs> Later, um, he used that intelligence that he demonstrated at an early age um, and then sharpened his social skills and had a relatively successful college career, developed a series of apparently normal emotional emotional relationships with women. Um, So he had broken up with that woman. He's already, at this point, started his serial killing career. But he ends up with a woman named Elizabeth uh, Klopfer. So in 1969, he begins a six-year relationship with this woman after he meets her in a Seattle bar. Uh, Elizabeth was a single mom of a young daughter who struggled with alcoholism, and ben- Bundy basically took care of her. And she expresses that he was very warm and loving at the time in which they met and got together and through that this sort of idyllic period. Uh, by 1974, however, Elizabeth started to suspect his crimes she questioned him about his odd behaviors like for example keeping a meat cleaver in his desk um classic yeah classic, classic prank mm-hmm, mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. um and you know again the figure in this sort of uh 12 grid page describes as once he's done with his victims, he rips them to shreds, he dismembers them, he tears them apart. Um, Bundy did similarly. He beheaded his victims. Um, Elizabeth secretly secretly went to the police with her suspicion uh, of Bundy's involvement, and they didn't believe that he was a killer. So they didn't believe women at the time. And the pair remained together for a while then after that, though they started to grow distant. And then he moved to Olympia the following year, kind of making her a grass widow herself. And then by 1975, Elizabeth then went to the police again, this time with evidence that helped them to arrest him. Uh, So he then confessed to Elizabeth over the phone from his prison cell that he had tried to kill her at one point and couldn't resist the impulses he felt 
with the sickness, quote unquote, the sickness building in him. So again, mm. this figure in this that we're this nameless figure that we're seeing in this issue talks about how he has these urges that build and build and build, and he tries to suppress them until he can't anymore. Um, and he says, "But the urge builds up in me, and then I do it to them, and then when I'm finished, the urge is satisfied." So Bundy expresses the same thing. He has this sickness that he describes building in him, and it doesn't go away until he acts and he kills another woman. So again, very similar sort of description of this urge. And I think that's pretty commonplace for most serial killers. You know, there's, they're not really all that unique when you <laughs> boil it down, but the, the verbiage is very similar. And in this time, he was um, becoming not notorious. He'd escaped prison like twice. And then finally he was executed in Florida's electric chair in 1989, uh, which that would have been big news around the time that they had been developing this issue in the first place. So current events, um, really oddly specific detailing of this character and the way uh, he experiences uh, his murderous urges. Um, even if you compare pictures of Bundy to the way this character is uh, penciled, not, not too unlike Ten Bundy's mugshots, apart from the fact that this character is not smiling. Um, but again, sort of standard, attractive white guy that is very confident about what he's doing. And the only difference really being that this character expresses some sort of conflict about what he's doing, whereas Ted Bundy definitely didn't. Um, and because there are some themes about feminism and whether, you know, this idea of like victims and predators um, come up a few times. I think it's important to note that this case of Ted Bundy really galvanized uh, women into becoming criminologists because a lot of feminist scholars felt like popular media romanticized Bundy and transformed him into this like really attractive figure to the public and they wanted to try to squelch that. So I just think it fits pretty well. Yeah, it certainly does. So Sean, you wanted to pull out Neil's notes from this particular issue and chat with us about a, a, a hodgepodge of things, which seems to have been uh, what your MO is here recently. So take it away here. Yeah, there's so much going on in this issue. It's such a long issue that, you know, I just wanted to cover as much as I could. And there's a lot of materials out there of Neil Gaiman talking about, you know, what he was thinking about, what he was reading about, what the ideas were that went into it. So I thought that would be fun to explore. And it works really well with some of what Ashley just, uh, you know, shared with us, especially the conjecture that, you know, the story is in part inspired by, you know, a lot of the recent popularity, for lack of a better term, of serial killers and things like that. And maybe Ted Bundy in particular. Neil Gaiman is on record as saying once he figured out that this was a story of serial killer conventions, he says he read Everything he could find from November 1988 through most of 1989 on serial killing, mm -hmm. uh, which he says is thankfully a lot less than what's around now. But yeah. he, he, he read all of it and he got to the point where he felt he understood the urges, the fantasies, the justifications, and, you know, want to sort of think like a serial killer. And then when he got 
when he when he sort of got it, he stopped reading and started writing. Mm-hmm. Um, so that would have been perfect timing to really be, you know, sort of embroiled in that Ted Bundy uh, story, right? Yeah. Interestingly enough, the idea for the convention came to him at the uh, World Fantasy Convention in 1988, uh, 88 in London. And, oh. you know, the World Fantasy Convention, it's not like a fan gathering. It's like writers and editors and things like that. And he says, so at 2 a.m., I looked around the bar and in a strange glistening moment of clarity, realized a convention is just a bunch of desperate people getting together for a long weekend to feel special. These people have nothing in common except for one shared interest that unites them, be it Barbie dolls or a 1960s TV show or comic books. And I thought, what if serial killers had conventions too? (laughs) 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 Just that easy. But this, this connection between, between art and creating art and consuming art and, um, this sort of, this sort of, violence and this instrument, you know, instrumentalizing, uh, you know, your, your fellow human beings is, I think, an area to dig into a little bit. And I want to do that first with just starting to talk about the Corinthian, right? Because he's mm. mostly been in the background uh, in previous issues and sort of takes center stage here. Um, this was an idea that came to Neil Gaiman just through doodling. Like he kept, uh, he was just like drawing and uh, he kept replacing eyes with mouths. And uh, he thought, uh, quote, this is really disturbing. I should use this. <laughs> and I love that. I love, I love that kind of creativity. We're like, oh, this is, this is really, uh, this is weird and troubling. I can't wait mm-hmm. to like tell everyone about it, you know? <laughs> um, and interestingly enough, so the name Corinthian which, you know, people have debated and even in the stories, people will, you know, wonder what it's about, right? So Neil Gaiman says it was 17th century slang for a licentious rake who does things like frequent brothels. Ah. And he points out, yeah. That's amazing. So he, he points out that, uh, that um, you know, Sandman's Corinthian doesn't have sex. Not at least the comic version, right? The TV version is definitely getting down. Definitely. You know this. Yeah. Uh, but the comic version, no. Instead of sex, he eats eyeballs, particularly the eyeballs of boys. Um, and he says, I wanted the character to appear very cool and charismatic in a way that the Sandman doesn't. Um, but I think that's worth distinguishing from making the world of, like, serial murderers appear cool, which he seems to have wanted to avoid. He says, Mm -hmm. "Uh, I wanted someone who was the embodiment, uh, for want of a better phrase, of the romantic spirit of serial killing. Serial killing had not yet been depicted as hip and groovy, but I could see that coming. Mm. For example, I'd begun noticing serial killer fanzines. So this is probably around that same time also, right? wow, okay. Um, complete with prison interviews. And I wanted to say, this isn't hip. This isn't cool. So we have, you know, the Corinthian, this kind of idealized vision of the serial killer, contrasted against the sort of banal evil of the collectors, um, which I want to come back to. But what I really love is 
our boy Mikey D's description of the Corinthian. And this is great. He says, the Corinthian is someone who devours everything he sees. I'd say mm. that makes him an unsettling symbol for artists. Ooh. Interesting. Yeah. He says, he says, everything I see, for example, becomes visual reference. And everything a writer like Neil hears and sees becomes reference. Neil once described his brain as a tape recorder that's switched on at all times. Mm. Neil even posed as the Corinthian for the cover of the collector's issue. Oh, cool. <gasps> <laughs> Isn't that great? So, you know, we have the Corinthian as this sort of dark mirror, right? Um, in part, I think, for Dream who, you know, we've seen, like, using and manipulating people like Lyda, like Rose, um, and also for, you know, for William Shakespeare, right? He's got this vision of what he should be doing, and we'll see as the story goes on uh, mm -hmm. how much that costs him. And then we've also got Rose, who remembers she wants to be a writer. And then... Perhaps even for, you know, us as uh, readers, you know, we're devouring the story with our eyes, right? As these characters live and die and suffer. Mm -hmm. um, you know, in that sense, I, I was telling Ben and Ashley, uh, I think last week, before we recorded how I'd recently seen um, The Tempest, the Shakespeare play, The Tempest. And this, reading that, uh, made me think about the end of the Tempest, where we have Prospero, who's this like uh, powerful wizard, and he's orchestrated all of this magic. You know, he's causing storms and you know raising spirits from the dead and controlling magical beings and all this. And uh, he's he's like literally treating people as puppets. He's controlling people's actions, putting them to sleep, and things like that. And at the end, he renounces his magic, and he turns to the audience, and he begs to be released from our spell so he can go on about his life. It's this very brilliant reversal, and it's kind of interesting to think of that in relation to our, like, society's perennial interest in serial killers and true crime, right? Like, we yeah. condemn these horrific acts even as we consume them. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so that you know maybe that's a bit of a stretch but i could all these things were sort of swirling about as i was reading this no i think um, that fits perfectly i don't that doesn't feel like a stretch at all to me personally i feel like i had more of a stretch than than in this <laughs> this claimant does that feels like it really suits well yeah i hope so yeah thank you i i feel like this this story is another one of those kind of outliers it's a little bit weird it's a little bit different but it does still sort of connect to the overall themes of the doll's house um, these idea of, of manipulating others, of viewing people as, as sort of less than, and of, you know, justifying it through the stories these characters tell about themselves, you know, like dolls and houses, right? Um, so, for example, you know, the scenes at the different panel discussions are very interesting because as we were talking about, every one of these people live in different and completely like incompatible fantasy worlds, right? They all have these walls built up around themselves, you know, these fantasies that sustain them as Dream points out. They're all sort of playing in dollhouses and treating people as dolls and, and Dream takes that away at the end. 
you know, but even before that, there was there was a cost to what they were doing. They have no connection to each other. They have no camaraderie. You know, they all seem very lonely, like the, you know, um, sort of pseudo Ted Bundy scene where he's talking, like you said, he's talking about wanting to meet people with the same problem and maybe they could help him. You know, he'd find people who understood. And then I love this because at that moment, uh, we've got, you know, Funland there who's sort of like listening to him and just kind of nodding along like, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And he like sees Rose and immediately like dips out and goes right. to follow Rose. And then <laughs> our Ted Bundy is just like sitting there by himself like, oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a great moment. And it sort of underscores the idea of the, you know, emotional walls people erect um, between one another. Um, I also want to point out that here we see the beginning of the mirroring effect that takes this, you know, that this whole storyline is sort of organized around in some ways, you know, where the second half of the doll's house story loosely mirrors the first half. Um, So, you know, using uh, uh, men of good fortune as the centerpiece the the chapters immediately around them sort of mirror each other and so on and so on until you get uh, to the first and the last chapter mirroring each other. And it, it gets stronger once you get to the, the poles, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But even here, you can kind of start to see it. You know, we see the beginning of that mirroring effect because in the last Doll's House proper story, um, in Playing House, right, Brute and Glob carve out a piece of psychic real estate to set up their, you know, their own little dominion. And they're using people for whom life in a fantasy world is preferable to living in reality, uh, Hector and Lida. Yeah. And Jed. Um, And then in Collectors, the Corinthian has sort of done much the same thing, inspiring all these losers and loners and weirdos to sort of follow his wishes. And then in both cases, you have members of the Walker family who are kind of like imperiled by these actions. And in both cases, Dream has to step in at the last moment and kind of clean up the mess. Um, so <clears throat> so uh, some, some thematic and, and larger structural items there. But I want to get back to just a couple more little Neil notes, little fun bits, because there's so many here. Um Let's see. Oh, the Little Red Riding Hood story. Okay, yeah. so that was so Neil Gaiman first came upon that early version in a book from 1985 called "The Great Cat Massacre and Other Episodes of French Cultural History" <laughs> by Robert Danton. He's still kidding. Yeah, isn't that great? <laughs> Uh, he says, he says, until then I'd only seen the famous cleaned up version by Charles Perrault. But even in that one, Red Riding Hood is eaten by the wolf. There's clearly bizarre psychosexual things going on in the early version in which the girl consumes the blood and flesh of, of her grandmother. And, you know, the wolf is all like, where shall I put my skirt? Throw it on the fire. You won't need it anymore. You know, and then she gets into bed naked with the grandmother who is the wolf. <laughs> and then they eat her. Uh, and Neil says, I thought it was an appropriate start for a story about serial killers. <laughs> And then sort of the last thing I want to get into here is, because this is a sort of hardcore issue, just a few brushes with censorship 
that Neil ran into oh. trying to get this story made. The first one is really interesting to me. The script for this issue refers to Funland as Disneyland. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yep. So he's talking about how like the parks would like clean up after him and everything and not want to get out. Wow. That was, that, and that was that change was made just before they went to press. They got a little bit nervous at the last second oh. of upsetting Disney. And then the 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 wolf ears that Funland has on were originally mouse ears. Wow. And they got changed at the last minute. And I'm just thinking like, can you imagine? Even coming close to doing that now, right? Wow. Like, you wouldn't get anywhere near that. But right. I don't know if it's just like, a, 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 you know, just like a, a consequence wow. of the changing of the times. Like, uh, 1989, 1990, that's probably like Disney at like a weak point, you know? It's not, it's not the massive behemoth that we have today this is like pre-disney renaissance this is before like lion king little mermaid and, and beauty and the beast and all those yeah, yeah this is yeah. the this yeah. is the kickoff so maybe you they thought you could get away yeah 89 is the kickoff of it all right, right like right. little mermaid's gonna come out yeah um and, and and so it's funny to me that they even thought like maybe we could get away with this you know um, oh that would have been incredible but if they had i know right <laughs> Certainly wouldn't have made it into the show. Certainly wouldn't have, but, you know. Um, Neil didn't mind they changed it because, you know, it didn't really hurt the story. <laughs> and the wolf ears, like replacing the mouse ears with the wolf ears sort of fit more with the with Gilbert's fairy tale and things like that. Yeah. So it worked for him. Wasn't a big deal. The other main censorship issue is probably my favorite Sandman anecdote. So the main change to the issue was on page 27 our our pseudo ted bondy's monologue because neil gaiman had it originally the guy to talk very clinically coldly and uncaringly about things like masturbation and then get more and more euphemistic as he talked about killing people um so he in the original script he begins by saying, I used to masturbate compulsively. And then he started to talk about the urge building up and his doing it until you realized he'd shifted to talking about murder. So this was kind of the vision that Neil Gaiman had for that monologue, right? Mm. He hands in the script and he gets a answering machine message from Karen Berger saying, people don't masturbate in the DC universe. <laughs> <laughs> and that that my friends is my favorite sandman anecdote the fact that someone had to say people don't masturbate in the dc universe <laughs> if she could only see batman now <laughs> right. Unreal. Uh, so i thought i'd end oh, with that that's with wonderful that that's wonderful that revelation. Well, we, we appreciate that we now know that for the rest of our lives together. So, uh, Ashley, let's go back over to you. You wanted to talk about, I think, the Oscar Wilde short story, The Selfish Giants? Yes. Uh, particularly because it is referenced, surprisingly. Uh, I know something. <laughs> it is referenced um, after Morpheus puts fun land to sleep after assaulting Rose. Um, if you'll see when he's sent off to dreamland, we have this sort of bolded uh, panel in which we're told that 
uh, Funland, who is now kind of referenced as a, a funny giant, um, is playing with all these children, and you know they're telling him that they'll be his friend, and he apologizes for hurting them, asking them if they'll forgive him. And that little bottom area, they say, of course we forgive you. Now let us play some more in these gardens, which are paradise. So that is a reference to, as Ben said, The Selfish Giant by Oscar Wilde, which is from the book, the, the anthology, The Happy Prince and Other Tales, which was published in 1888. Um, and the story is of this really mean giant who has this beautiful garden. He was, he was away for like seven years visiting his friend, the Cornish Ogre. And he uh, he comes back and he finds these children playing in his garden and he kicks them out and he basically puts a sign up saying like trespassers will be uh, persecuted or um, like taken care of, dispatched of. And because he's so selfish, then the seasons refuse to visit his garden apart from winter. And so winter just settles upon his garden. Um, ah. It becomes cold and lonely. No children ever visit again. Until um, one day, some children decide to venture in and climb the trees and stuff. And he, and he notices that the trees are beautiful again. They're blossoming. Spring, spring comes back a little bit. Um, and he, when he goes to chase them off, um, then he realizes that that's what's changed all the trees, are the, the, the presence of this children and them enjoying his garden. Um, one child stays who didn't run away because he's blinded by his own tears. Um, and that is the little child that the giant, the selfish giant ends up loving best because it's the first one he really meets up close. And he helps this little child into a tree, which once it had withered, once the child had fallen out of it, he puts the child back into the tree. It blossoms again. It's beautiful. So, he grows old. He lets the children play in his garden. He tries to look for this little child that he quote unquote loves. Um, and he can't find him anymore until the very end towards the end of the selfish giant's life. And this is how the story ends. And I'm going to read this real quick. Cause it doesn't, I can't retell it better than it does. And it really illustrates how it is like a one for one reference in the comic book. Right? So this is how the story ends. One winter morning, he looked out of his window as he was dressing. He did not hate the winter now, for he knew that it was merely the spring asleep and that the flowers were resting. Suddenly he rubbed his eyes in wonder, and looked and looked. It certainly was a marvelous sight. In the farthest corner of the garden was a tree covered with lovely white blossoms. Its branches were all golden, and silver fruit hung down from them, and underneath it stood the little boy that he loved. Downstairs ran the giant in great joy and out into the garden. He hastened across the grass and came near to the child. And when he came quite close, his face grew red with anger, and he said, Who hath dared wound thee? For on the palms of the child's hands were the prints of two nails, and the prints of two nails were on the little feet. Who dared wound thee? cried the giant. Tell me that I may take my big sword and slay him. Nay, answered the child, but these are the wounds of love. Who art thou? said the giant, and a strange awe fell on him, and he knelt before the little child. And the child smiled on the giant and said to him, You let me play once in your garden. Today you shall come with me to my garden, which is paradise. And when the children ran in that afternoon, they found the giant lying dead under the tree, all covered with white blossoms. 
and that is the end of the story. So it is this really, really thick uh, little allegory of Christ as a child. Very in the garden. On the nose. Oh yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. And so then it's interesting then that we have this this short story about. Uh, kindness and forgiveness and love and immortality and paradise uh, then being referenced in this issue that as you know Sean has illustrated for us is about death and cruelty and sadistic mm. torment um, and uh, and the fact that Funland is granted this dream is really interesting to me and the fact that he he experiences this as being the most wonderful dream he ever had initially when i first read this issue when we see funland being led with the children like up what looks like a cliff to me i thought oh he's being led to his death in his own dream this is horrible perfect for this guy um but the fact that it's the most wonderful dream he ever had i I think is kind of interesting. Um, the reason I wanted to talk a little bit about immortality though, is because we have all of these religious, all of this religious imagery throughout the issue, particularly on part of the serial killers who have sort of tried to establish themselves and establish their reputations for being immortal. And they um, even reference uh, different serial killers who couldn't make it because they've been dead for years. Uh, the one journalist who tried to pose himself as the boogeyman and Corinthians like, no, I know the boogeyman and he died. Like this is not him. Um, but the fact that serial killers, the serial killers can never quite know who of their own rank are dead and alive because the reputations precede them and they have this lore about them. I find that interesting that we get this issue immediately, after Men of Good Fortune, which is about immortality, friendship, and more, um, le leading a moral life to some extent. And then in this issue, we get mm. a, a, a description of an aspiration to immortality um, through acts of death and cruelty um, and leading a completely immoral life. And this this concept of immortality has always been a really interesting one with regard to uh, Christian theology, because as much as um, Christians aspire to immortality through uh, the one that they worship, Jesus Christ, um, there are plenty of philosophers then who are like, well, Christians can't really live a moral life for that long. We screw up all the time. What would be the purpose of, of immortality for us? We would botch it. Um, there is no perfect perfection apart from, from Christ or through Christ. And Kant offered uh, a sort of argument for immortality that I thought was kind of interesting in that immortality could be a postulate for developing a moral life. Um, you know, the fact that moral law demands that human beings should become perfect. Um, but then by nature of being mortal, mortality usually cuts off this endeavor at its, <laughs> at its knees. Um, so then if you had an, uh, an, if you had immortality, you might be able to actually, um, achieve some sort of like perfect moral existence. Um, unless say you're Catholic and then you already consider the saints as having, uh, achieved a moral life in the in the mm. mortality, um, and so then you've got these serial killers who are definitely not trying to establish their sort of like lore like immortality through virtuous or moral means. Uh, they are definitely doing so through through means that 
truly only, only serve them, which is then why that sort of conflict at the end with the Corinthian and Morpheus is really compelling because Morpheus is stripping away their dreams and thus forcing them to face the reality of their own is existence, which also confronts them with their mortality, right. um, which I just find to be right. really poetic. So the fact that we've got this sort of, um, this Christ-like allegory in the middle of all of this uh, murder and bloodshed, and the fact that, that that is a dream that's granted to Funland by Morpheus, who is usually much more cruel than that. Like, I, when I remember when I first read this issue, I thought for sure Morpheus was just going to dispatch him <laughs> entirely. Um, so it's just an interesting sort of um, inclusion in this that then sort of heightens, I think, the rest of the uh, religious imagery throughout. Nice, yeah. Amazing. I like that. I always wondered about that decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you put a nice pin on that decision. Sean, whatever happened to the family man? Well... Let me tell you, because it was always very strange to me when I was first reading this to see all these mentions of a totally absent character, right? Like, the family man's supposed to be the guest of honor. We know he was coming over from the UK. We know he's old, and we know he's not there, and that's it. And that's sort of like part of what sets in motion the whole plot of the story. So I did a little, did a little reading around and learned that the family man was actually a, a character in a several-issue-long story arc from Hellblazer. Remember, that's the... That's the series uh, that followed John Constantine. And so oh, yeah, I read yeah. through that, and I thought, for all of you who have been scratching your heads about what's going on with this missing family man character, that I would tell you exactly what was going on with him. All right, so so this is, this is Hellblazer. This is issue 23 and 24, and then Grant Morrison does an uh, unrelated issue, and then Neil Gaiman... Grant Morrison does two issues, I think, and then Neil Gaiman actually does one issue uh, of Hellblazer, and then 28 through 30 are more Family Man stories. And this is all coming out at the same time as uh, the Sandman is getting started. So there's kind of, they're kind of creating these little, creating this little mini shared universe within the larger DC universe. You know, we've seen connections to to superheroes and to Jack Kirby characters and things like that. But these are those those sort of few series that would eventually become the Vertigo imprint starting to, you know, kind of make those connections, cement those connections with each other. All right. So the Family Man storyline begins. It follows one of the weirdest comic book stories I've ever read. Um, Issue 23. Issue 23 is the setup for issue 24. And in issue 23, Constantine goes to visit this friend of his who's this like super exuberant, rakish, interesting, mysterious, lovable, charismatic, larger than life person. And they go out drinking. Um, and that's just the issue is they go out drinking together. But the problem is the friend is so interesting and so larger than life that He's actually wanted by a bunch of literary characters for violating the boundaries between real life and fiction. <laughs> so like, sh yeah, so like Sherlock Holmes and like Peter Pan and stuff are out to get him throughout the issue. <laughs> no. 
it is very strange. Wow. Um, and at the end, uh, this guy gets dragged off into a library and put on trial and convicted of his crimes of violating copyright law. And it's not until he enters the public domain that he can be released. Kidding me. And that's the end of his Amazing. story. But, <laughs> but John Constantine does like the normal Constantine thing and then goes back to this guy's house and tries to loot it for anything of value. Because uh, the guy's gone, right? Might as well use his oh. stuff. So while he's there, he gets this visit from this like enigmatic old man who's uh, supposed to exchange an envelope with Constantine's missing friend. So Constantine helps to find the envelope, exchanges it with the guy. After he leaves, John opens the envelope uh, and pieces together that his friend, actually not that great of a guy, he had a business arrangement where this fellow who was obsessed with serial killers pays him, Constantine's friend, uh, for trophies that that guy gets from directly from serial killers. So he's got like this, like this, uh, you know, business selling trophies of serial killers uh, to this guy. And he finds out uh, his friend's most reliable source of trophies is from a killer that he's worked out a deal with. So he would get trophies in exchange for information on potential new victims that he would give to the killer. This is the old man who showed up. So John Constantine's friend would find the victims. He created this fake contest to find Britain's happiest family. And he, they would send in their names and photos and addresses. Uh, And then Constantine's friend would give those to the killer in exchange for the trophies. Yeah. Because the killer uh, would go after these families uh, and hence his name, family man right wow so yeah so kind of messed up uh and and constantine like burns all the money he finds and was like disgusted by the whole thing and he doesn't take anything from the guy's house so you know i guess there's something to be said for that um he's kind of like uh he's he because he's he ends up racked by guilt about helping to like facilitate this exchange i and would it's hope shown so by, yeah so it's he's visited by the ghosts of the dead family who once he gave a family man that envelope family man went and killed that family and the ghosts of the dead family come and visit him. Um, and he has a nightmare about it and he awakens from this nightmare and he thinks he, he's like, ah, nightmare. I'm not supposed to have them anymore, <laughs> which is a reference to, uh, uh, our our issue of Sandman with John Constantine, oh. where Morpheus agreed that he wouldn't have oh, bad right. dreams anymore. <laughs> right. So again, little Sandman reference there. So we learned that the Family Man is this guy Sam Morris. He's a retired cop, and he starts off uh, living in this nursing home. And you know, him and John Constantine, they like had this connection with each other when they met and they kind of continue to think about each other. You know, they, they see this sort of loner, this outsider reflected in each other. And, you know, Family Man's been killing for years. He's a cop. He's a pro. You know, he's very good at what he does. And they're sort of circling each other because Constantine feels like, you know, 
um, he 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 should do something here because he helped. You know, he's partially involved in a way. Um, so, you know, Family Man's using his police. Uh, connections to get info on Constantine and Constantine like scams his way into learning more about the family man uh, via the buyer of the trophies. And so while he's investigating, he actually intercepts the invite to the serial convention. Uh, it's, it's a little card that appears in this issue and it reads, the family man is formally invited to attend as guest of honor the first annual convention of the serial murders of the USA. <laughs> Which it, it, wow. it seems a little bit bold okay. to have that on like a invite card just right. going around, but okay. Yeah. Um, so meanwhile, the family man tracks down one of Constantine's few living relatives, his estranged father. And in this split second decision, he murders Constantine's father, Thomas Constantine. Um, and he actually wow. also murders him because he felt this kinship with him. Like he feels this like pang of love for him. And in order to like quiet that, uh, he, he, he kills him. Um, and so, you know, meanwhile, Constantine is like, he's trying to do his thing. He tries to lure the family man out by orchestrating a false arrest, like he has the buyer of the trophies arrested, um, you know, uh, basically accusing him of being the family man. And, you know, John's like posing in the background of the photo and he figures family man will see this, be kind of lured out by it, right? So they're both sort of doing this dance. Um, and, you know, <clears throat> then Constantine learns that the family man has like come to London. He's kind of freaking out because even though his plan was to lure him out into the open, he like hadn't really planned anything beyond that. And things were progressing faster than he's, like he's expected. Yep. Yes, exactly. So yeah, he's nervous. Um, you know, with the idea of confronting this guy who's here to kill him because John might, have to actually like fight this guy physically rather than, you know, con his way out of trouble or like manipulate someone else into doing it for mm -hmm. him. Um, which is, you know, not, not his style, like not like getting into fisticuffs, you know? Um, so out of desperation, he has his friend Chaz, uh, who also appeared in Sandman, get him a gun. And it's, it's, it's interesting. And it's sort of a, a little like <clears throat> heart wrenching to see that, his getting this gun is treated like this really crazy step he's taking. Like, whoa, like you, he's getting a gun. What's wrong with this guy? Um, whereas like here, you know, in the U S where we are, people are like always trying to convince you to get a gun, you know? Um, so right. it, it, yeah, the, the, the difference was a, a little startling. Yeah. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so meanwhile, Family Man's getting closer. He's like visiting places where John has been. Eventually he finds Chaz. He beats the hell out of Chaz. Um, and Chaz is like canonically like a very tough guy. So even though Family Man is old, he's like tough as all hell. So Family Man like leaves Chaz with a postcard from John's hometown, Liverpool. And that sort of reveals that he killed his father. And like John like hates his dad, but he still like weeps. Um... So, you know, he knows he's being followed at this point. So he concocts this plan to, like, make sure that Family Man overhears him describing his plans to go to Liverpool and, you know, to know when he's going to be out. And then he sort of sneaks up behind him and, like, he's, he's, he's standing on a, like, a sort of elevated platform and he's, 
He's got this gun out and he's watching the family man, right? Uh, but he can't bring himself to murder the guy in cold blood. Uh, you know, I kind of like this moment where he just like can't do it that way. He's, he's, he's thinking, uh, you know, it shouldn't be this easy. Life's supposed to be sacred. You can't just end it like a sentence. You're human. You should feel something. You know, and he kind of goes back and forth. He's like aghast at how easy it is to take a life while his gun's sitting there trained on, you know, the unsuspecting family man. And eventually he decides he needs it to be more personal. He needs to, the family man to know that it was like him who's doing this to him. So, you know, he goes about his day the way he made sure the family man overheard him describing it. And he like tries to get the jump on him at a construction site, but family man doesn't take the bait. It's this really long, tense journey. It's an excellent like sort of cat and mouse game uh, of a story. They eventually confront one another and family man sort of slashes at John with his knife. John pulls the gun. Family man mocks him for his hesitancy, sort of confident that Constantine doesn't have the guts to use it, but he does. He shoots him, and it's this sort of glancing blow, and we flash back to Family Man's memories of childhood, you know, like a sick dog that his father put down in front of him, his parents leaving him home alone while he goes out at night, and then, you know, Constantine shoots him again, and he shoots him in the leg, and he's bleeding out, and he looks like pathetic and old and weak, and Constantine is murdering him, um, and it's like, it's it's ugly, and it's messy, and there's nothing heroic about it, mm. you know? It's just such an interesting moment for a comic book. Um, you know, Constantine shouts at the family man for, like, an explanation to know why he did this. And the family man tells him, you know, you, you have to like, kill me to find out sort of thing. And then he sort of grabs the gun, he points at the gun at his own head, and they both squeeze the trigger together. And Constantine wonders, you know, how should you feel when you've just killed a man? Christ, it must mean something in the scheme of things. The traffic should stop at least. And uh, he leaves the body of the family man in a field, and he tosses the invite to the serial convention uh, on the family man's bloody corpse. And that's the story of the family so that's man. That's what happened to the family man. Wow. <laughs> that's what happened to the family man. Wow. Yeah. And, and as a little bonus, I also just will tell you briefly about the other missing serial killer here, the boogeyman, who appears in... Swamp Thing issue 44, that one with the cover that you mentioned, oh, actually. That's, that's the one about he... the boogeyman. Oh. Yeah. Okay. I didn't realize it was <laughs> yeah. that connected. Yeah. I'm not going to go through like a big, long description. It's not a whole story arc. It's actually a pretty minor story. Like the boogeyman runs around killing people. He does remember their eyes, just like Philip Sitz does in the issue. And he describes the eyes of all his victims. He says, you know, give me a number. And, oh, okay. And they it. give him a number and he describes the eyes, you know, and we follow his perspective as he like murders a man in a swamp in Louisiana. And uh, the rest of the issue is pretty much unrelated. Like <laughs> it involves Swamp Thing is visiting, you know, his girlfriend, Abby Arcane in his in her home. But it gets awkward because he like comes in through the sewer pipes and she doesn't want him ruining the carpet. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> it's this very real relationship <laughs> moment, you know, where it's like you're starting to date someone and they like come in and like make a mess because they're used to doing things their own way. And it's like it's like, uh, you know, you got to find that balance in a relationship, you know, um, so, so I did like that. And John Constantine's around in that one, too. Uh, he runs into Batman for absolutely no reason. Um, 
you know, uh, this was during like Crisis on Infinite Earths, so they're they're running oh, all over. It, okay. But it's, but it's very weird. Um, so the boogeyman like freaks out when Swamp Thing confronts him, uh, and and he he drowns in the swamp, <laughs> and that's pretty much it. it. <laughs> it's really oh. it's 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 a it's a very minor issue, but there is a boogeyman. He is there. He is in the swamp in Louisiana, and uh, Swamp Thing put him oh, there. My God. Well, Sean, thanks so much for letting us know what happened with both the family man and the boogeyman. We're going to skip right on over to favorite panels, and we are going to be starting with Ashley this week with your favorite panel from 39 pages. So it's kind of a lot. Yeah, it was hard to choose just one, and I'm I'm going to because I'm not Sean. My favorite panel is, I'm not sure which page this is, but it's when the Corinthian and Nimrod and the good doctor are all getting ready to take care of the journalist. And it's that, it's right below when they've hung him up on the tree, and they're all smiling at him, like getting ready. This would be page 20. Thank you. Yeah, to do their like their various specialties. And you just see like their darkened faces, but their smiles that look like just as sharp as the knife that the Corinthian is holding. And I think mm-hmm. it's so um, cleverly rendered that as much as it really makes me very uncomfortable, like I don't like looking at it, but it is so skillfully done that I can't help but continue to look at it. But I'm just truly so unsettled by <laughs> by it. That's a good one. That's a good one. Thanks, Ashley. Mine's going to come from page 30. This is when Morpheus is confronting Funland. And it is the panel that is zoomed in on his face where he has his hand out and is conjuring up some sand. And he, he says, she isn't yours, Nathan. She belongs to no one except perhaps to herself. Mm. And I just like that where he says, except perhaps to herself because she is the dream vortex. And things are a little weird. But right now he knows that, you know, this is the best thing that he can do. But I just love his seriousness in that moment. Mm. Yeah, it's a very cold, scary Sandman. Like, you wouldn't, he seems very threatening there. Yeah. Yeah. And then the fact that, as as Ashley said, you know, Nathan, the Funland actually gets like a nice dream from that, which is, you know, kind of odd based off how he looks. Yeah. Yeah. And on uh, on that page where he gets the dream, um, this is not my choice, by the way, but uh, I'm just... Just happened to be mentioning uh-huh. it. He looks, he looks so tender when he's cradling Rose there. He does. It's so like, uh, you know, it looks like a, like a, you know, like it should be in a Cure album or something, <laughs> right? Like it's, it it's, does. It's like so, so soft and like gentle and 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 ethereal. It's it's a great panel, but that's not my choice. Um, my right, John, so what my is choice. choice. <laughs> <laughs> My my choice is going to be page uh, 16, I believe, just a few before Ashley's. And it's going to be that one where Rose and Gilbert and the Corinthian and the good doctor <laughs> are all on the elevator together. And that's I'm oh, yeah. looking at. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to go third row on the right hand side. Mm-hmm. So it's the one where Gilbert's kind of holding his hat. And I just love these poses. I love the beat 
of this silent moment. I love the good doctor. You know, he's these serial killers are all isolated, so the good doctor is just like staring in the corner, mm-hmm. like intensely. And then they, you know, the Corinthian, like this cool cat, is just like checking out his nails. Gilbert's freaking out and like awkwardly holding his hat to like block his his face and i love rose over there is like hey corinthian (laughs) looking pretty good (laughs) you know it's just such everyone's pose is perfect i love the way uh that mike dringenberg this is weird but i love the way he draws clothes i Mm. love the way that clothes the clothes he draws sit on people i feel like they all sort of fold and wrinkle in the right places it just feels very real and lived in absolutely so that one's mine well, Sean, we come right back around to you for your character from this week's issue. Who you got? I'm going to choose, in, a, in an issue of weird characters, I'm going to choose what I think is the weirdest character. And that is the hotel manager. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yes. What is happening yes. with that guy? Why, why is he how he is? What, why does he call everyone Bub? Why does he wear a cowboy hat in Georgia? Why is why does he have all this like why is he reading bondage time mm-hmm. and and have like these like you know like naked women pictures up all over the place and he feels very confident about it. Did this guy kill the actual hotel manager and just like set up shop there? How did he get involved <laughs> in in hospitality? This guy does not seem like he's in the hospitality industry. He seems as inhospitable as it comes. And so for the for the mystery, the very, you know, the 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 impenetrable uh, uh conundrum of this character, I'm choosing that guy. Excellent. Thank you. Sean for that. Um, I, I'm going to use my uh, wild card here um, and I'm going with Gilbert. I feel like Rose now has definitely, she should be very happy that she decided to have Gilbert come along. And at the end of the day, he's the one that goes out there and, uh, and finds Jed. And, you know, just like his look when he's standing there and this is on, uh, page 36, just kind of, you know, holding a very limp Jed like in his arms uh, is just a really wonderful kind of uh, moment for that character of Gilbert's. So he's going to get my nod for this issue. Ashley, how about you? Yeah, my my character, my favorite character is chosen not for any deep reason, but just because it made me chuckle um, on the again, you're gonna have to help me out with pages. But when they're having the three different panels, uh, the thirty, the three thirty panel discussion. There is no sanity clause, which I also thought was a hilarious name for a panel. Um, mm-hmm. The Page um, El Dorado, just the way El Dorado's drawn as this like brick of a man who's just kind of grinning, as like a used car salesman would. <laughs> but ultimately, because his name tag is on his hat, where everyone else we've seen in this issue has their name tag pinned to their shirt, but he's just such a large man with such a very large hat, he puts it on his hat, uh, made me laugh. <laughs> he's just a doofy-looking dude. He's a yeah. doofy-looking dude. What's happened with that chin? Right, exactly. That's... And we the, so the, that hat he wears, a lot of people wear, the, um, wear those in Nashville. It's like the influencer hat that everyone wears. And like thinks makes them look trendy. So the fact that he's wearing one as well, I find very entertaining. 
I feel like you need to get a screen print of El Dorado and put it like on a sweatshirt and wear it around Nashville. <laughs> be like, what there is that go. from? <laughs> it looks I'd so cool. Bank. Like, he's a serial killer from a comic book. <laughs> right. Joke's on you. Don't you feel bad. So with that, we've wrapped up issue 14, Collectors in the Sandman. We spent quite a bit of time, as the issue also does, looking at all of the various serial killers and serial killer influences that we might have here that Neil kind of pulled out. You know, Sean kind of alluded us to the fact that when Neil realized that he was going to set this at a serial killer convention, he spent a whole bunch of time reading about it and just trying to absorb and what these people would be and what their motivations would be. So that way, you know, he can really, you know, do such a great job of both presenting them in a way that makes sense, but also, you know, you know, making fun of them, you know, at the same time and not glamorizing, you know, any of this as, as it goes. And of course we also learned that you cannot masturbate (laughs) in the DC universe. (laughs) Thanks for listening to this episode of the Sandman. Unlocked. And remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story. Thanks for tuning in to The Sandman Unlocked, an odd conduit media production. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Sandman Unlocked. Join us on Discord as well. Thanks to our show producer, Patrick Childers, and to Lieutenant Headtrip for our theme and incidental music. If you'd like to support us directly, head over to our Patreon. You can follow Ashley on Twitter at D-E-E-D-E-E underscore K, and on Instagram and TikTok at Ashley Mowers. Find Sean on Twitter at Lon Dogson, and find Headtrip everywhere at LT Headtrip. You can get all of this info and more in the show notes. Make sure to follow and subscribe and review us wherever you listen. Until next time, and remember, never trust the storyteller, only trust the story. Odd Conduit Media. Media.